Today's scripture comes to us from John chapter 1, verse 14, and 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen this glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so yeah, we had the men's retreat, and uh, it was quite exhausting. And with the uh, with the daylight saving thing happening, I, I just knew I wasn't going to be in a state of mind to to preach to you today. Um, I have no idea what a hangover feels like, but if if it's kind of like what I go through every day raising five kids, then. What are you guys thinking, man? Why, why in the world would you do that to yourself? Um, but anyway, uh, but with that said, this was a wonderful occasion to invite a dear friend of ours, uh, someone who's been a part of our ministry from afar for many years and is now a little bit closer these days. Uh, but uh, missionary Peter Kim is with us this morning, and he's going to be delivering God's word today. Uh, as you guys may remember, uh, Missionary Peter and his beautiful family have been global partners with us for many years uh, in China, and they're currently now serving in the inner cities of Philadelphia as they transition uh, to a new global uh, context uh, soon. So uh, continue to pray for them, continue to remember them uh, as you pray for our church body, because uh, they are serving faithfully and they are serving with such uh, devotion and it is really an encouragement to me and um, he also gets to meet Pastor Charles as well so this is a wonderful opportunity to reconnect with them so please say hello to them after service and just encourage them uh, with just fellowship downstairs afterwards but without further ado please Missionary Peter come on up thank you all right good to be here with you guys again um so we have two verses that we just read as our main text. Uh, first came from 1 John 14, and we just read that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The verse actually speaks of Jesus, the word of God, having become flesh for us and coming to dwell with us, dwell with mankind. The second is 1 Corinthians 3.16. It says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So this verse actually speaks of the spirit of God dwelling with mankind. So the main idea of today's sermon is pretty simple. It's nothing new. It's that God loves you. He wants to dwell with you. And he pursues intimacy with you. So God loves you. He wants to dwell with you. And he pursues intimacy with you. But what does intimacy with an invisible God look like? I've heard people say, you know, it's hard to have a relationship uh, with God because you can't see him. You can't see him. And for much of my life as a Christian, because of that, I threw myself into the study of the Bible, study of books and the people who wrote about the Bible and other things. And um, so I read book after book, and I came to realize that knowing about God is not the same as knowing God and having a genuine and growing and intimate relationship with him. And all I had to do was look at my prayer life. You know, it's, I mean, I prayed. I prayed every day growing up, but it felt impersonal and dry. It didn't feel like an intimate conversation between two people in close relationship. So if it's true that God wants to have that kind of intimate relationship with us and pursues intimacy with us, what does that mean? 
What does that mean? In what sense can we commune or fellowship with God? What I'm going to do today is I'm going to try to give us a kind of a larger picture, a big picture of the Bible, and show you from the beginning to the end that God does pursue, from Genesis to Revelation, God does pursue this, and I'm going to try to show it to us from the, from the theme that the Bible uses of the temple, the temple. Um, his pr- whole purpose is to dwell, love us and dwell with us. And the, what the Bible does is it uses this theme of the temple to show, show us that God dwells with us. Let's go to, God dwells with us, and his desire is to enter into, uh, for us is to enter into that temple so that we can have a close relationship with him. So that's, that's where we're going. Today's sermon is actually going to feel a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon. So if you have paper or if you, if you want to just take notes on your phone, that's fine with me, whatever you want to do. But it's gonna, we're going to be flipping through a lot of um, different stories. But quickly, we're going to kind of move through the Bible quickly. So I, I just want to give us a kind of like a larger picture of what the Bible is saying about God's presence with us. And then hopefully by the end, I could hope, hopefully end with just help, helping us to have a deeper hunger for intimacy with God. Okay, deeper hunger for intimacy with God. So first, we're going to start with creation, Genesis. When we think of the garden, can we see the, uh, what do you think of? So Garden of Eden. Maybe if you grew up in a church or if you've heard stories, you might have something like this in mind. You know, there's like two naked people and they're like eating tree, or eating fruits off trees. They're maybe, maybe even petting, petting lions or something. You know, you don't, you don't, something like that. You might have that kind of image in mind. And the idea is paradise. The idea is paradise. But for us to get into just a deeper understanding of creation, what we have to understand is that actually Eden and the Garden of Eden was the first temple. It's a temple. God's creation was a temple. How do we know this? Well, if you look at, compare Garden of Eden to the actual temple that Solomon eventually builds, there are so many similarities. And the reason why there are similarities is because that later on, the temple of Solomon was built to reflect the first temple of God, which is the Garden of Eden. And I'm just going to go through a few things here. You see, like, the in, the in the temple that Solomon builds, there's three areas, the Holy of Holies, the Holy Place, and the Outer Courts. And then there's the... Eden and the river flowing from the Eden to the Garden of Eden, and then there's the rest of the world. Uh, there's other similarities, like the lampstand is built to look like uh, trees, and all around the walls of the Holy of Holies, there's like trees there, and there's this water basin to reflect the water, and there's all these statues of a- animals on the outer course to reflect God's creation. Uh, it, 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 it all points east, which is what the temple was supposed to. There's so I mean, there's, it's just that's like the tip of the iceberg of how the temple reflects the Garden of Eden. Um, what's the significance? Okay, what's the significance? From the very beginning, we see the love of God. The love of God. God creates a temple you know, called the Garden of Eden. He creates a temple. He dwells in the temple, and he creates people to dwell with him in that temple, to hear his voice, to walk with him, to enjoy his provisions. So this all happened in the first temple. The story, actually, if you know the story, goes quickly into the fall of man, what we call the fall of man, and Adam and Eve disobey God. And they were forced to leave the temple or leave the presence of God. So for some of us, we hear this story and we think, somehow God had this loving side, and all of a sudden he became this furious, spiteful, angry side and kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden for disobeying. Like an angry parent who can't control themselves, they just kind of kick them out. So God seems two-faced. There's a loving side and there's this kind of weird, uncontrolled 
angry or furious side. But this is not our God. He's not two-faced. God is love, we know. So what happened? See, God had warned Adam and Eve that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. That was the warning. They would surely die. And when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, something happened at the core, at the center of who Adam and Eve were in their nature. Adam and Eve began to have a deep knowledge of evil as evil penetrated into their hearts and to their minds for the first time. So Adam and Eve, they changed. They were no longer the same Adam and Eve. It was like cancer that began to spread throughout their entire body. Knowledge of evil penetrated into them and they were no longer pure and righteous. So this is why Adam and Eve were forced to leave God's presence, to leave the temple, the Garden of Eden. If they remained there, they would surely die. Why? See, our God, another picture of God we have all throughout the Bible is God is a consuming fire. It says in Hebrews 12, if you look it up, he's a consuming fire. In other places, it talks about God as a consuming fire. If there's anything unrighteous or sinful or impure in his midst, he will burn it up. That's just what would happen. If Adam and Eve were to remain in the garden, God would burn them up unto death because they were no longer pure and righteous. It's like when light comes into contact with darkness, light penetrates into the darkness and overcomes it, like John 1 says. Only the righteous can remain in the temple of God, be in God's presence, and not be burnt up. The unrighteous will be burnt up and die, surely die. God didn't all of a sudden stop being loving and turn this uncontrolled, angry, and furious side. God doesn't change, but humans do. And so they were forced to leave the garden. And at the gate of the garden, if you read Genesis 3, at the gate of the garden, God puts an angel with a flaming sword flashing back and forth at the east side where the gate is. So I want you to keep this imagery in mind because as we go forward, we're going to come back to this imagery because it's going to be important for how we actually get back into the garden, into the temple, okay? This flaming sword flashing back and forth. So summarizing so far, where we're at, we have the temple, we have the Garden of Eden, we have God dwelling with them, humans have become unrighteous, impure in their nature, slaves to sin, Romans would say, and forced to leave his presence. So this corruption of humanity had become so bad by the time of Noah, Genesis 6-5 says this, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of man or human heart was only evil all the time. The cancerous disease of sin was eating up humanity, enslaving them, and leading them to do all sorts of evil deeds. That's what's happened by the time of Noah. And so God sends a flood and does a reset of creation. He wipes everything out. But in the story, God finds one righteous man named Noah and tells him to build an ark. Now, if you do another study of the ark, which we don't have time to do today, guess what the ark is made to look like? The temple. It's, it's, it's a miniature temple. It's a floating temple. God was going to pres be present with Noah in the temple that he creates, and Noah could enter there because he was righteous and dwell in God's presence and be saved. After the flood dies down, you know, Noah comes out of this ark temple, and Noah offers a sacrifice to God, and God gives him this promise. This promise is very important. It's very important. It's Genesis 8, 21 to 22. I don't think I have that up. I'm just going to read it for us. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. 
Even, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. That's God's promise. Never again, he says. So here we see a very clear dilemma. It's a dilemma that started from Adam and Eve, and it's a dilemma that's going to keep following us. And the dilemma is this. I think I have this up there. The dilemma is this. God, God is love. He loves humans. He wants to dwell with them. But how... How will human beings re-enter the temple, the temple of God's presence, to walk in an intimate relationship with God? How will we do that? You know, God is a consuming fire. Humans have corrupt nature. So how will that kind of happen? How will God not destroy all living creatures, as he promised in Genesis 8 to Noah? Um, so that's the dilemma that, we're gonna, that we saw from Adam and Eve, and we see again, from the story of Noah. So moving forward to the story of Moses. Moses, we're going to skip over Abraham. Don't have time for that, but Moses. Many of you guys know of the stories of Moses. He, get the, you know, he brings out Israelites from, the, from, the, from Pharaoh and Egypt, from slavery, slavery there and from the oppression there. They, they, God does lots of mighty signs and wonders, even splitting the Red Sea so that they can safely cross over to the other side being free from their oppressors. So in choosing Israel and saving them from Egypt, God was essentially saying this, even though the entire world was becoming corrupt, even though the cancerous disease of sin was making everyone a slave to sin or a slave to Satan, I'm going to choose one nation, Israel, and reveal myself to them. I'm going to draw near to them and teach them to be righteous before me by giving them my laws. See, righteous and giving them my laws. And this is what God does. God brings Israel out of Egypt and gives them his laws. But will this work? Can God actually draw near to Israel, to fallen humans, by giving them his laws without consuming them in his fire? Will they be able to re-enter the temple and enjoy God's presence? That's the question. And we see the answer, um, we see the answer to this question in Exodus 19-20. to So Israel comes out, of, uh, of Egypt, they get to this mountain called Mount Sinai. That's where they're going to get the laws. That's where it, Moses goes up to get his laws. And Exodus 19, 4-6 says this, God is speaking to Moses now. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on an eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, righteous, right, righteousness, then out of all nations you will be a treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. I put that in red. Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. That means every single one of them will be priests. They will be able to go into the presence of God as priests. Because well, Adam and Eve were the first priests. So they, were, they will be able to go into the presence of God as priests. By saying this, God is saying, if you're righteous before me, then you will all be priests. And all of you will be able to enter my presence. You'll be a kingdom of priests. But one chapter later, in Exodus 20, I have that up there too, 18 to 19, we read this. When the people saw the thunder and lightning, thunder and lightning, and heard a trumpet and saw the mountainous smoke, they trembled with fire. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. When the people of God saw how powerful, how mighty, how holy, how consuming God is, they trembled and told Moses to go in their place. 
Otherwise, they will die because of the fire of God's presence. And so from the very beginning, Israel couldn't enter into the temple of God, the place where God dwelt, lest they die. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests. Instead, they became a kingdom with a few priests. And this is what happened in Exodus 3. We read that Moses entered the tent of of meeting where he actually dwelt and talked with God. But everyone else, the, uh, the scripture highlights that everyone else, they stood on the outside in front of their tents to see Moses go in and out because they, they couldn't go in and out. Only Moses could. So the dilemma was not solved through Israel. How will God not destroy the whole world with his presence? How will humanity re-enter the temple and dwell with God? That's the question. That's the dilemma. And we're given one more clue in the laws. And this, uh, I wanted to highlight this part, the sacrificial system. So, sacrificial system. On their way to Egypt, to Canaan, Israel is told to build this tabernacle, which tabernacle is pretty much a moving temple. You know, they're moving around, so they need a place uh, where that represented the temple, and it's a tabernacle, it's a moving temple. And in the tabernacle, in the temple, at the heart of it is this thing called a sacrificial system. The sacrificial system, basically what it's saying is this. If Israel sins, they could bring a pure animal to be sacrificed on their behalf. The animal will be cut or killed, and then the animal will be burnt by fire, with fire. The fire represented God's presence because God is a consuming fire. And the fact that the animal was being burnt up was to signify that that should have happened to them. Not to the animal, to them. They should have been the ones burnt up, right? No one who is righteous can be before God without being burnt up, as Israel found out at Mount Sinai. And God provided a way for Israel to remain alive, in a sense, through a temporary patch. Instead of them being burnt up and cut and to death in God's presence, they can sacrifice an animal instead. It's not that Israel all of a sudden became pure and righteous because they sacrificed an animal. They, were, they, they still didn't have access to the Holy of Holies, to God's presence. They didn't have access to that, even, they, even though they sacrificed an animal. It was a temporary patch. And the temporary patch, what it did for them was it, it allowed them to not die themselves, at least temporarily, until more was revealed. So going forward, uh, we're going to, let's see, add uh, Solomon. So Solomon builds a physical temple, but that temple actually gets destroyed. And this is devastating. And it's destroyed because they were conquered by foreign nations after they got into Canaan and they had David and Solomon and all this, a lot of stuff happened. They were split and, and they, were, they were destroyed. The, the temple was destroyed and their land was taken by, by foreign powers. And so they were enslaved to other nations again, just like they were in Egypt. So without the temple, without their land, it means they're lost people again, with, cut off from God in their mind. It was devastating to Israel. And here it's where we hit some of the prophetic books now. We're kind of kind of moving forward ahead. Prophetic books of the Old Testament. Uh, how will God deliver his people? Same question. How will people, Israel and humanity, re-enter into God's presence without God destroying them, especially now that they don't even have a temple? And here God speaks through a lot of the prophetic writers like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Joel, and others. And I'm not going to read all of them, but um, there's a slide here. You could... It's hard to see, but you could write down the text if you want. I'm not going to read it all because it's kind of long. But his, God says things like this. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you. You will be my people and I will be your God. 
You don't have to go to someone else to get to know me. From the least to the greatest, you will all know me. I will speak to you directly through visions and dreams. So God is saying, I have a plan. And in this plan, God will, he will do something new and mighty. God will change their very nature. Adam and Eve's nature changed when they sinned. They became slaves of sin and darkness. But God is saying, I'm going to change all that. I'm going to cleanse you, not just from the outside, but from the inside. In fact, I'm going to give you a new heart and put my spirit in you to obey me. In God's plan, he will be so intimate with them that they will have the very spirit of God within them. They will be able to hear God and follow God. They won't need to go to a special priest to ask them about God, to get to know God. They will all be able to know God. They will be a kingdom of priests as they were supposed to be. Now the question is how? After the prophets, uh, God remained silent for some hundreds of years. Israel is now conquered by someone else, Romans, and God seemed very distant to them. But it's at this time that Jesus comes into the scene. Actually, when you read the book of John, it reads like this. It starts, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why does John start by saying that, in the beginning? So what John is doing is using creation language, creation language. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. He's using the same language to say that when Jesus came to earth, a new creation was being birthed. The old creation was being done away with, and God is remaking creation through the person of Jesus. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. A new creation was being birthed. Old creation was birthed to Adam, a new creation is being birthed to Jesus Christ. In the first creation, God had built a temple garden, we talked about for Adam and Eve. It was going to be a place where God dwelt in intimate fellowship with them. So it shouldn't surprise us when, that when Jesus comes to build a new creation, God establishes a new temple. Because God is always about wanting to build, dwell with us, to be with us. In John 1, 14, the verse we read, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. If you look at the word dwelling in the Greek, uh, and the way it's translated, it's actually the same word that's translated in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament for temple or tabernacle. So the idea is that Jesus came and tabernacled or templed among us. God was coming to dwell with humans again. God was reestablishing his temple in a new way through Jesus Christ. But how? Again, the same questions. How will we become righteous? What about our sins and our corrupted nature? Won't we all be burnt up? In the life of Jesus, we see two titles or two names that were, and of Jesus that you know, we see over and over again. The first is Son of God, and the second is Son of Man. On the one hand, he is God, of God, is God. He is the Son of God. On the other hand, he is of the earth fully human, taking upon himself a corrupted nature. He is the son of man. And as the son of man, he took upon himself Adam's corrupted nature, the old creation nature, by becoming human, born of a woman. 
a nature corrupted by sin. So he became, if you look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says he became sin for us. And this is what the cross was primarily about. The presence of God comes fully upon fallen humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Just like in the sacrificial system, the fire burns the sacrifice. The presence of God burns the sacrifice. But it was a temporary patch. The sacrificial system was given to show what would happen what should have happened to Adam, what should have happened to all of humanity was to die like the animals on the altar. But God delayed that judgment, delayed that judgment until the cross. On the cross, what should have happened to Adam and all of humanity happened to Jesus. God's fiery presence collides with Adam's old nature and the sins of the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And he surely died. He surely died. As Jesus died on the cross, he breathed his last words, it is finished, meaning God's judgment that's been delayed from the time of Adam and Eve has passed fully onto fallen humanity in him. And as he died, we were saying this earlier, the veil was torn. The veil of the Holy of Holies, the veil to the place where God dwelt, was torn, Matthew 27. The path to the presence of God has now opened to humanity. Jesus' death, and Jesus' death, the old creation, the old nature, the old humanity that was enslaved to sin was being put to death. And in his resurrection, in his resurrection, a new creation, a new person is born. Those who are in this new creation, in Jesus Christ, have a new nature, renewed by God. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves of God. And their end is eternal life. Just like Jesus, death has no mastery over us. Another way to look at this is that the pathway back to Eden that's been closed forever by this fiery sword flashing back and forth, right? That pathway has been broken. See, humanity couldn't go back into the Garden of Eden to God's presence. But Jesus, in a sense, went through the flaming sword, was cut and burnt, and rose on the other side. And he opened the way back to the Garden of Eden tearing the veil to the, temp- to the temple of God. Romans 3.21 says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, remember, it's about righteousness. Only the righteous can enter into the temple. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So we have attained righteousness like Noah was righteous. We have attained righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. And now we get to dwell with God for all eternity in deep and rich fellowship with him. We get to re-enter the temple. This is what we were created for from the beginning. This is what we made for all the way to the end. This is what Jesus made possible. And this is why in Revelation 21, the very end of the Bible, we're told of what happens at the end times. At the end, God will establish a new kind of temple. See, from the very beginning to the end, there's temple language. He's going to build a new kind of heavenly temple and invite us all in, those who belong to Jesus. 
So from the very beginning to the end, we have temple. We have God's presence dwelling with humanity. He created us for intimate relationship with him because he loves us. And he did everything. He solved the dilemma through Jesus Christ. So now we have a timeline for what we've seen so far. We have a timeline. So we saw Adam and Eve, Noah, Solomon's temple, Jesus comes, and the end time. Right now, uh, we're right there. We're, it's kind of in red. Right now, we're in the age of the church, which I label the age of the spirit. After the work of Jesus and before the end times. We live in the age of the church. And in the age of the church, we are the temple of God. God reestablished his temple, and the temple is us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, was it 2 Corinthians That we read earlier is 1 Corinthians, uh, forgot which verse, but don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? Now, this is very important. See, salvation isn't simply about getting to heaven one day. Salvation is that now, see, if you, if you follow God's story, now we get to have access to the very presence of God. We get to actually have an intimate and close fellowship with God again. The temple doors have been opened we, are the, we truly are the kingdom of priests, or royal priesthood, First Peter 2.9 says. So we are the temple of God's presence. This is how close God wants to be with us. He lives in us. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, He lives inside of us. We are no longer far away. We don't have to go to a priest or someone else to get to know about God. You know, in a sense, we all, from the least to the greatest, we all get to know God personally, as Jeremiah prophesied. So going back to the original question um, we asked at the beginning, what does intimacy with an invisible God look like? In what sense can we actually have a close relationship, a fellowship with God now that the doors have been opened, now that he lives inside of us? And I believe in large part, not the whole, but in large part, the answer is to get to know the Holy Spirit, because he's the one that lives in us. The Holy Spirit is a person, just like the Father is a person, the Son is a person, the Holy Spirit is also a it's Trinitarian faith. We believe in one God, three persons. And right now, we live in an age where we experience the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, because he dwells within us. We won't always be in this age, um, in the end, when we enter into the we'll enter into the entire presence of the entire Trinity in a more intimate way, as Revelation 21 will tell us. But for now, in our age, where we live, we have the Holy Spirit as a down payment. As Ephesians 14 says, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. We have the Holy Spirit as a down payment. In our age, the Holy Spirit comes to fill us, and because we are the temple of God's presence, and he comes to fill us to abide in us. So what does the Holy Spirit do? What does the Spirit of God do? There's so many things that he does. He comforts us. He counsels us. John 14 says he helps us in our times of weakness. Romans 8, he prays in us, and he prays through us. Romans 8 tells us that. He convicts us of sin. 
Ephesians 4, he empowers us to bear fruit and right, fruits of righteousness, Galatians 5. And he speaks to us uh, the words of Jesus, the truth, John 16. Speaks, us, speaks to us of things yet to come, again in John 16. Purifies us with fire, because Holy Spirit is fire as well. Fills us with peace, gives us gifts, called the gifts of the Spirit, so on, so on, so on. The Spirit is very active, very active. If you look at these verbs, the Holy Spirit does everything like a friend would do, a good friend would do in front of you. He counsels, he helps, he intercedes, he speaks to us, he gives us gifts, and so on. He's not only active, he's very personal. Personal. See, God may be invisible, but the person of the Holy Spirit is actively at work in our lives, giving us tangible experiences, just like when we experience someone right in front of us. On top of this, I think this is, part, for me, the, more, the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does is Romans 5.5 5 says, that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Spirit. Again, He wants to love us. He's saying, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Spirit. We experience the indwelling love of God through the Spirit. I want to share a few practical things before I end here. Um, I see four ways, at least. I mean, there's these four ways that kind of... Um, I'm sure there's a lot more, but I just want to mention these four ways in which we can actually experience the Spirit of God on a day-to-day, day-to-day basis. Okay? The first one, and this is, you know, they're all important, the first one is to we learn to discern His voice. See, we can't have an intimate relationship with someone we can't hear or communicate with. Um, if you couldn't speak to your spouse or your, you know, your parents or your siblings or your friends, you know, it's some way of communication it's, it's almost impossible to have an intimate relationship with them. And the Spirit speaks to us the words of Jesus, John 16. The primary way we hear the voice of God is through the Word of God. It's through the Word of God. When I say that, I'm not talking about knowing about God through the Word of God, which is also important. We need to study the Word of God and study the ins and outs so we know about God. But we get to hear the voice of God through the scriptures as well. For me, for you, for that day, for that moment. Um, the Spirit takes the truth of God's word and speaks it right into our hearts. And this is what the two disciples experienced on the road to Emmaus. When they were walking towards Emmaus, Jesus was there and he was opening the scriptures to them. And what did they say later? They said, the word of God, whatever Jesus was saying, was burning in their hearts. It wasn't just that these were truths that they knew about. Somehow the words became words for them, and somehow the Spirit was working in them to burn it into their hearts. But I also believe that God speaks through other ways, through visions and dreams and prophecies, as Joel, um, Joel the prophet, uh, prophet Joel proclaimed. And for me, at least experientially, uh, one way that, was, that this has come true in the last few years has been through dreams. Dream. So before a couple years ago, I would say I probably had only a handful of dreams where I felt like God was speaking to me. But in the last number of years, maybe two or three years, the number of dreams has increased as, as God spoke through me through dreams. Um, God would give me dreams about particular people I would meet, even what they would say the next day. Um, who I would meet, dreams of what would happen in my life, or dreams of what will happen in my life, or dreams of how to make important decisions. Um, right, let me give you one example. So before we came to Philly, I had a series of dreams where I, I had 
where God spoke to me that I would be reaching Arabs. Now, we were in China. We weren't reaching Arabs. Um, something about Arabs. I was like, reaching Arabs? That's so weird. I don't know. Reaching immigrant Muslims. I was like, immigrant Muslims? Another dream. Another dream about a coffee house and a computer cluster. And a coffee house. Computer. Another dream about something about Morocco. Morocco, okay. So all these things are kind of building up. We get to Philly. We meet someone from our organization there. He um, lived in Morocco for 15 years. He owns a coffee house. He wants to start a computer, like a, like a social media outreach ministry, and their focus is immigrant Arab Muslims. Now, if you think about like, all these it's like pieces being put together, any one dream you think, oh, maybe it's just, or even two dreams, but I think God, what God does is he gives, you, he gives me clues. He gives us clues as to things that he wants to see happen directly in our lives. And this is one way one way that God speaks to us. Not all dreams are from God. Not all dreams are from God. So God, God, shows, God showed me that how I can discern better which dreams are more likely from him and which dreams aren't. It's a communication. See, it's about intimacy. It's not about having these cool dreams and saying, oh, I had this cool dream. It's about relationship with God, learning to hear his voice as a sheep who learns to hear the voice of the shepherd. And this is who we are. We're sheep. And we get to hear the voice of our shepherd. Because as we hear from him, we can deepen our intimacy, our relationship with him, because that's what he desires. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He reveals the words of our shepherd, Jesus Christ, to us and speaks it right into our minds and our hearts because he lives in us. Second, we get to experience in greater depth God's love for us. God's love for us. This is very important. I, I, and I mentioned this, Romans 5, 5. You know, God's love has been poured out upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And I think there's something that's, as I became, became more and more open to the work of the Spirit in my life, something, I felt like something, one of the biggest fruits for me um, is that God has sensitized my spirit so I can feel and experience his love on a, on, on a day-to-day basis. So many times throughout the day, I would just have a feel, uh, kind of a fullness of his love, and it would overwhelm me. Now, as an Asian American and as someone who, you know, we're taught not to boast, you know, boast or talk about positively of ourselves, generally speaking, and, and to others, you know, I, I, I was thought, yeah, I don't know if I should share something like this. But I felt challenged because, you know, this is, challenge to share this because it's not like I earned it or somehow I gained it or I could boast about it. It's nothing that I've done. It's, it's what God has always told in the scriptures that he would do. That is to fill our hearts with his love. And my desire is that all, all people would not... You know, I feel like I just tasted a piece of what God wants to do, and God wants us to do so much more to, for us to actually experience the love of God living in our hearts through the Spirit. When Paul says that in Romans 5.5, 5, I don't think he just said it theoretically. I actually believe that he was experiencing it, that the love of God was being poured out into his heart through the Spirit. And I believe that the same Spirit lives in all of us, and He wants us to experience the love of God being poured out into our hearts, just as Paul says in Romans 5.5. 5. So I believe that is also 
another way we can walk with the Spirit. A third way we walk with the Spirit is the Spirit not only talks to us but reveals and reveals God's word to us. This is He purifies us of our sins and weaknesses. He purifies us. Uh, recently, God's been bring, bringing up two issues in my life. The first is this kind of this kind of this dull longing for recognition and status, this pride aspect of my myself. And another is uh, being easily led to anger. So in the first one, the pride and recognition and status thing, um, it really, it really kind of came up some number of years ago when we were out in out in out in China, and um, we were kind of in this meeting, and I heard somebody say that someone else got kind of placed in this different higher position in in our in our organization, and for some reason, even though I didn't even like want that position, somehow in my heart I felt this insecurity. Or rec- wanting recognition, or wanting status, or something was kind of like pumping in my in my in my heart, and this insecurity. And I knew that was something that God wanted to work on. And another, th- the other one, uh, having um, the other challenge that God's been bring, kind of bringing up, is e- how easily I can get angry with my kids and my wife. <laughs> but here's the thing. See, whenever God used to bring up these weaknesses in the past, I used to cringe and start feeling very insecure. I used to think, like, what's wrong with me? You know, why am I so weak? And I, and I felt unqualified for God's love. I had in mind this angry God or someone who wanted to kind of bring this up so that, and maybe to punish me or something. I, just, I wanted to hide these things from God, just like Adam and Eve hid themselves from God. But now, now that God, now that the Holy Spirit is revealing God's love to me, I know God better. See, God is not like that. God is love, and it's His kindness. It's His kindness, not anger. It's His kindness that leads me to repentance. So when He convicts me of these areas of weakness, I don't need to hide. I can run into His arms and say, "Thank you for your kindness for revealing." yourself to me in this way and surrender to him and his love. It's a different kind of response. See, the fire of God comes upon us in the spirit, but he doesn't burn us up. He actually purifies us. And we don't have to be afraid when he does that. We welcome his love and kindness to us that leads us to repentance. The fourth way, uh, I'm not going to really talk, I'm just going to mention it, but I'm not going to talk about it, is that he gives us gifts so that we have power for ministry. Gifts, uh, power for ministry. Um, I'm not going to talk about that today. I just want to share those first three. We get to hear his voice, which is so precious. We get to hear his voice. We get to experience in greater depth God's love for us. And the Spirit purifies us from our weaknesses and sins. So here's my concluding, concluding thought. Um, so from the beginning of time, we were, we were made for intimacy with the living God. You know, we can have that. We were made for it. And in our age, we have become the temple of God's presence, and the Spirit of God dwells with us. If you're like me and grew up in a church uh, similar to back, my background, you know, we, we've talked very little of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we, we might have talked about the Holy Spirit in the sense of fruit of the Spirit or how the Spirit dwells in us. Um, we focused a lot on what Jesus accomplished with respect to forgiveness of sins and defeating death, which are very, I mean, it's the center. It's very important. But equally important is that Jesus tore the veil 
and we can re-enter into the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the temple of God, the Garden of Eden. We can have that deep and intimate relationship with God now as he dwells with us through the Holy Spirit. This is what we were made for. And God gave us a great gift, Holy Spirit, who dwells in us. So my encouragement is if you want a deep relationship, intimate relationship with God, my encouragement to us all is to get to know the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Let me pray for us. Thank you for your love for us, Father. And all that you have done all throughout history, but also in our lives personally, and that you dwell with us, you dwell in us, continue to touch our lives and walk with us so that we can grow in our intimate relationship with you. Come alive more and more in us as we surrender to you. Give us that intimacy that you desire for us and help us to surrender ourselves to you for that. We trust in you in Jesus' name. Amen.